Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another special edition of the podcast where we sit and talk to an author of an important new book. In this case, the new book is Renewal from Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work, and Politics. And it's by Anne Marie Slaughter, president of the New America Foundation, formerly head of policy planning under Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, formerly dean of the school, formerly known as the Wilson School, I guess. It's, it's not still known as the Wilson School, is it? It's the School it? of Public and International Affairs at Princeton. Exactly. Well, uh, there I'll you go. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's like Prince. And uh, also very well known um, f- as the author of the Atlantic article, Why Women Still Can't Have It All, and an old friend. Hi, Emory. How are you? David, it's great to hear your voice and to be on with you. Uh, good to be on with you as well. I think this is a great book. And I think... You know, this week, it really resonates with me because, you know, we've come out of this election and it seemed like the central issue in this election, which I find undoubted, it's undoubtedly overstated to some degree, but certainly it came up everywhere, is a debate about how America looks at its own history, how, how we evaluate ourselves. And you did this brilliant thing in this book of looking at your own experience, and then seeing that as a lens for discussing this bigger issue. So the first question I have is, you know, how did you have such foresight to predict what this election would be about? Uh, Well, I'm definitely not in the political foresight business, but I will say that for the past decade, but certainly the last five years uh, since 2016, this issue of how Americans tell our own history, stress the hour, and it's a very broad hour, as we are moving from a white majority nation to what I call a plurality nation, where there is no majority, there are multiple pluralities, is inevitable and bound to be fraught. Uh, And I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, Born in 1958, you know, Jefferson worship was the name of the game. You expected Mr. Jefferson to walk around the corner in Charlottesville. Many trips to Monticello. Nobody ever called it Monticello Plantation. No one ever mentioned Sally Hemings. And today, Clint Smith's How the Word is Passed, which opens with a chapter about Monticello Plantation, because it was a plantation. And that's the top of the bestseller list. So these issues are inevitable because the history that I grew up with and you grew up with was the history of white people. And even there, uh, it's a pretty sanitized history. And as we become African-Americans, Latinx Americans, Asian Americans, Native Americans of all kinds, 
we have to tell our history honestly, I think that makes us stronger. I think it's the sign of a strong, tough, confident nation that we can face our history. But obviously, lots of people don't agree. You know, the Sally Hemings example is a great one because, of course, Jefferson was idolized. And then and, and, and I remember going as a kid, you know, to Monticello and they would say, here lived the slaves. He had good relationships with the slaves. He freed the slaves when he died you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then the Sally Hemings story came out and, and, and there was this kind of whitewashed story of how Jefferson dealt with the slaves um, and he did free Sally Hemings and, and Sally Hemings moved into downtown Charlottesville, I guess where you yeah. grew up. Yeah. And I once wondered, said, where's her house? And then it turns out it was paved over to be a parking lot, you know, that, you yeah. know, which was kind of, how the history worked, right? Yeah. We paved it over and turned it into a parking lot. And a Joni Mitchell fan, I see. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and and so, you know, I it just it seemed to me that this, you know, really cuts to a core issue. But you got there in a way that to me was, I mean, knowing you, it was typical, but it was a what is in in general life a rare combination of courage and insight because you looked at a problem that you went through uh, in your own professional life, and then you used that as a portal into this story. Do you want to describe it a little bit? Oh, David, you're so good. I wish I'd thought of portal. I keep using analogy, but portal is exactly right. Yeah, the, you know, the opening line of the book is, it was the worst day of my professional life. And even now, if I say that line, my stomach will tighten because I remember uh, you know, going through what was a major professional crisis for me. I'm quick to say many people have had worse crises, uh, and the book is not about that crisis. But that crisis triggered a process of radically honest self-examination. And it starts with, you know, my calling David Bradley, who's on my board and was at that point chair of Atlantic Media, and he tells me, run toward the criticism. And he doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say it'll be fine. He says, you know, even if criticism is only a tiny part of the, the whole, it's true and you have to run toward it. And that process took years, but led me to a, just a better place. I'm a stronger leader. I'm a better leader, but it was it was really hard. I called up every member of my board and said, you know, let me have it straight. I went back to the president of Princeton University when I had been dean and said, okay, you know, tell me why you didn't make me interim dean. Uh, and at going through that, as I wanted to write about that, because it was a leadership story. And I knew from my Atlantic article that if I personalized things, I could reach a broader audience. But increasingly, as I worked on the book, it really did seem like a portal to this larger debate. And the, the analogies were clear, but also after George Floyd, it was also something we were having to go through in our organization. So it, it, it really seemed to have multiple levels of resonance. It's obviously I'm not the country, uh, but I, the, and I wanted to try to write a book that would draw in a broader audience, but at the same time, have a lens on really big issues in public life. Well, I, the, I mean, the crisis, the way, the, the way it's described, the way I recall the crisis is um, uh, some folks got 
you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but some folks got left laid off at or at at the New America Foundation, and uh, asserted that they were fired by as a result of pressure from a donor, turns out to be uh, Google, and um, uh, you know, I, in the book you'd say this isn't true, but I mean, you know, that doesn't make the crisis any less, right? right? <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, the, the 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 reality is that you have to confront. Uh, you know, sort of a media um, firestorm. You you describe, I think, thirty eight articles talking about it, and um, and you know, any of us who've ever been through this kind of thing, you know, every one of those articles burns yep. uh, as 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 you do it. Um, but you know, you get to this set of insights where you start saying whether it's true or it's not, some of this is because of me. So yeah. I made some mistakes and how I approached my job, how I approached the people I work with, how I approached my own privilege. Um, talk about that a little bit, because yeah. I think that's a really a, a core element of the book. No, exactly. And my son actually said to me at some point, mom, you didn't, you made mistakes. You just didn't make the mistakes they said you made. And that's basically true. And I, I was responsible. You're a leader and your organization's reputation is you know, being dragged through the mud. Ultimately, that is your responsibility. And there were certainly a lot of things that I did wrong. But as you point out, it also led to larger self-examination. And we had a consultant who interviewed members of New America. And New America, the portrait of New America that emerged was not the organization I thought I led and I didn't have the relationship I thought I had. And I do think as a boomer boss, just about anybody I know, if you really did an examination of what everybody thinks, there's just so many gaps there and differences that I, I think other people would probably find at least echoes of, of what I went through. It became a journey. It's so trite. And, and again, David Bradley said, it's going to be a learning journey. And that is just so trite. But ultimately, it was. It was a process of internal getting coached and thinking hard, not just about what I was not good at, but what I was good at and what I should really amplify. And then how to how to lead in a way that complemented uh, what I am good at, but but with people who are good at lots of other things, but also really changing my my view of a leader as somebody who sets the vision and is kind of out front. I, re I lead much more collectively. I still have big ideas and a vision, but it's a style of leadership that I honestly think is just better adapted to both a world that's changing where you have a lot of people who think very differently from one another. You know, when you talk about the David Bradley example, um, I think, and, and this is just because I'm a weird dude, but I think of a, um, um, uh, there's a Buddhist writer named Thich Nhat Hanh. I don't oh, know yeah. Thich Nhat Hanh, right? Yep. And he's a Vietnamese Buddhist. Um, but he, and he's also got some stuff going on in France. But he <laughs> says, when there is something you fear, you should go straight at it. Mm -hmm. And um, the same is true if you've got a problem, you should go straight at it. Um, and I think at the core of this is the idea that until you do, you can't fix anything. Yeah. You can't grapple with anything. 
And, you know, we are having this, you know, critical race theory argument where people are saying, I don't want people teaching things in the school that may make them not love America or not feel as good about America. Now, you know, we know critical race theory is not taught in any school and it's all a canard, but it does tie to, you know, people's backlash against 1619 and all this other thing where people are afraid of talking about the parts of our own history as a country um, where uh, that, that, that might challenge us with that and, and, and thereby not recognizing that it's only by talking about those things that we grow. And that seems to be the core you know, punchline of, of the book. Absolutely. And, and actually, David Bradley gave me the example of you know, having a, an argument with your spouse and it's clear to you, your spouse is 98% wrong. And, you know, you're all up in righteous heat and how, you know, absolutely not. That's you who did that. And he says, but maybe, maybe there's this niggling sense that your spouse is 2% right. And all of us actually know when a criticism lands, because that's exactly where we get defensive. You know, we know we procrastinated. We know, and that's exactly something we don't want to face, which is why we, you know, the best defense is a good offense. And I do think that's right with the country, except to me, it's a sign of weakness not to be able to stare our past in the face. And we've had to do this before uh, in, you know, in lots of ways where even sort of among different white groups, it's hard to remember now, but we know the Irish, the Italians, Jewish immigrants, Russian Jewish immigrants versus German Jewish immigrants, this constant, you know, the the latest arrivals uh, were looked down on and people were making themselves feel good, you know, by thinking they're the true Americans successively. And yet to me, it is, so much stronger to be able to be a country that says we committed genocide, we committed crimes against humanity, we have continued to oppress and certainly suppress, uh, certainly African-Americans descended from enslaved people, but also many other groups of color and some white Americans as well a country that really believes in its ideals, and we are not shy about trumpeting those ideals, is a country that can do basically what Martin Luther King asked us to do, right? When he got up at the Lincoln Memorial and he says, you know, the Declaration of Independence is a promissory check, a promissory note. It's a check that hasn't been cashed. And he says, look at what we've really done. But then he says, and this is equally important, as you say, if you can face it, then you can say, okay, and it's never as scary as you think it's going to be. It's bad, but it's never as scary as, as you worry about. Now we can build something together because now we can look at one another honestly. And you know, it's not wallowing in guilt, it's acknowledging and recognizing and then repairing. Yeah, I think that you know, the other thing that I, I drew from it is that we're afraid to confront our past because we're afraid to confront our future. You're talking about this, you know, this, uh, you know, plurality nation or however, however you describe it, um, where by 2043, the majority of people in the United States are going to be from groups that we once thought of as minority groups. You know, 2043 is not, not a far. million years away, right? It's, 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 it's 20 years from now. And already we've got, 
you know, California is a minority majority state uh, under five people in America, the, 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 that age yeah. cohort is a minority majority age cohort. And yep. over the next 20 years, each age cohort will, will face this reality, which gets me to another thing that I think is kind of interesting in your book. You mentioned being a boomer um, periodically in a way that made me wince because I'm, you know, there also. And I, I, I don't think the history of boomers is going to be so great, mm. but there is a difference in the way, you know, millennials look at these issues yeah. because they are, you know, they, or the, the way they look at history and no matter how, you know, enlightened we want to be, it's hard to see it through their eyes. It's hard to, you know, those gaps or tensions within, within organizations, you know, that, intergenerational issues that we've got to deal with you had to deal with in your own company yes that is that's true and you know i have a i have a chapter on grace and i find grace sometimes sorely lacking and i think you know your time will come too we all age and you will discover that it's not so easy to change as fast as the circumstances demand. And I think about the amount of change over my lifetime and what my parents you know, are having to, to adapt to. I do think though, in many ways, the, the dreams of the 1960s and the change of the 1960s, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, but also that is when we changed our immigration rules. Uh, to allow far more immigrants uh, for, from Latin America, from Asia, basically from places other than Europe, non-white uh, immigrants. And there was a lot of, you know, obviously hippie culture, but there was a belief in our own ideals. And to me, that is, that's kind of my lodestar is you say one thing and you do another. Of course you do. You and I both denizens of Washington, at least for me, part of the time, that's the name of the game. That's politics. You make promises, you don't adhere to them. But to me, what has kept our nation going and through wars, as well as a major revolt, has been this sense that, wait a minute, those words have to mean something. And if they have to mean something, then they can't mean something only for white people. And that the, a lot of what we did, even as boomers, for all the things we haven't done and for all the backlash, the, the kind of coming of age of that generation, and I'm in the second half of the boomers, so I, I was only 10 in 1968, uh, but still there was this sense that there's something more than materialism and there, we really can, as Barack Obama would say, you know, strive for a more perfect union. So I think there, there's a lot I'm willing to answer for, but I do see the boomer generation as occupying a position in the arc of American history that ultimately will, will make it easier to become that nation that we're gonna be for the next 250 years. And you know, all those people, you know, we all have different skin color and everything else, but we're American. Right. If you look at an Asian American versus a Chinese American versus a Chinese person, you know instantly that that person's an American, just the way they even carry themselves. Yeah, I think I think you know I think that's right, and you know I part of the political debate in the United States has to do with things like history. Part of it has to do with how we um, 
view our constitution, our rules and our values, you know, and, you know, we have the Federalist Society and we have all of these strict constructionists and they think the greatness of the constitution is the way the words were set down on the page 240 years ago. And I, you know, I think the reality is the greatness of the constitution is that it was designed to perfect itself. It was designed to be changed. It was designed to adapt because it knew that times would change. And that requires this notion of renewal. Um, you know, I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to get partisan here, but, you know, when I look at what President Biden is trying to do, you know, about investing in the United States and investing in education and looking at foreign challenges and investing in infrastructure and talking about how do we reinvent ourselves for the 21st century? And, you know, when you talk about from crisis to transformation, you know, the, that, that seems to be where we are as a country. We are in a crisis, identity crisis, who are we? Um, and uh, a big chunk of people are uncomfortable with where we are going and they want to live in the past for as long as possible. But the, the promise all lies on the other side of the ledger. It lies on the renewal and transformation side of the ledger. And we've got to embrace that in some ways, you know, you know, your, your, your story becomes a metaphor for that. But I think that's, that's what I took away. Maybe I, maybe I. I think that's right with one correction. So I deliberately use renewal, not reinvention. As I say, renewal is, it looks backward and forward at the same time. There's right. that re part is always there and you're not going to have a whole new you and you're not going to have a whole new country. But I also do that because, you know, there's a big part of the book that says, look, Jefferson did all these terrible things. Jefferson also wrote the words that inspired Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass and countless people around the world, as well as reformers here. Uh, you know, Jefferson was an extraordinary man, even as he was a deeply flawed one. And part of the fear that I think people who are holding on so tightly to the traditional narratives and to white supremacy in the sense of, you know, American culture is white culture. They're afraid they're gonna be, they're gonna have nothing left. And part of what I wanna say is that's not true either. I mean, if I have a bone to pick with my friends on the, on the further left than I am, it is that patriotism or love of country is a dirty word. And, you know, on my Twitter feed, I put patriot very deliberately. And I always quote James Baldwin, who said, you know, I love my country so much that I reserve the right to criticize her perpetually. I see no tension between love of country and demanding that we be the best we can be. But I think actually talking about what do you love about this country is a bridge to groups who are afraid there's nothing to love. And since they represent the traditional country, there's no room for them. Now, you know, there are obviously folks, I would just say, nope, you know, you cannot insist on white supremacy. You cannot curtail voting rights. There are all sorts of lines I would draw, but I do think that there's something in the notion of renewal that offers 
a better path to what we would call a nation that can hold us all than certainly the revolution <laughs> and certainly than restoration, right? Because restoration's out of the question, but but I I chose renewal very deliberately for that reason. Right, because I mean, and, and it it builds on what is good. It doesn't, and and I think that you know, I mean, I, again, I take that from your 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 own story in the book because you know you're a strong leader there, and you're still the leader there. You know, I, I mean, <laughs> you know, you know, you you, you wait came, for now. <laughs> well, you came through on the other side of this, and you've built this organization in a terrific way, just as you have done others in the past. Um, and so, you know, part of it is the recognition that you know, well-intentioned people who do, you know, most of what they do right every once in a while, stumbling got to fix things and well-intentioned countries that have, you know, the right kind of aspirations uh, regularly stumble and have to fix themselves. And, you know, that's, that, you know, that's growth, right? Right. And, uh, but have to be really honest about, you know, some of those stumbles are pretty huge. <laughs> Well, it's true, and yeah. and it's and it's very hard to do. But you know, my one of my m mantras that my children tire of hearing is, <laughs> um, either you're growing or you're dying. I love that. And, <laughs> and you know, I mean, I I just think it's you know you've got to got to keep pushing. I do too. Um, you know, this may be the salvation of the boomers. Um, I you know I I really really hope that our um, uh, listeners. Uh, we'll go out and get renewal from crisis to transformation in our lives, work and politics by Anne Marie Slaughter. It is just the kind of book that you will um, um, uh, like. You know, our, our our listeners are people who are deeply engaged in these kind of issues. It touches on a whole bunch of things we haven't been able to touch upon here in this brief conversation, including the challenges of being a woman leader, yes. uh, challenges of leading from the center, which I thought was a really interesting. <laughs> uh, section section on that. There are pitfalls to leading from the center as there are in a hierarchy. Um, and so I encourage everybody to go out and get it. I congratulate you, Anne-Marie, on a terrific book. Um, I hope that uh, it does extremely well because the message is one that could not be more timely. Uh, thanks for joining us. And perhaps someday we'll have you come back and, you know, talk about fixing the rest of the world. <laughs> David, it's been such a pleasure. It's it's always fun to talk about a book with somebody who's read it that attentively and, and asked such great questions. Thank you very much. And for the, those of you who are interested in what else we've got going on, go to the DSRnetwork.com. Um, uh, we have four or five podcasts like this every single week. And if you like them and want to support them, click on membership and uh, support this uh, little enterprise, the world's smallest media company. Thanks, everybody, and uh, stay healthy. Bye-bye.